In Argentina and Chile, we are extremely used to having an official identification number and having to share it constantly in our daily lives. When I heard that people in some countries had rejected proposals to implement official identification systems, I was like, how do they manage to live? Yes, not everyone wants to be numbered. But why? Hello world. Welcome to the very first episode of Number Humans, a podcast by us, the three 2019 Jody Digital Identity Fellows. I am Paz, originally from Chile, but now living in Argentina. I'm Subhashish from India. I'm Seba from South Africa. In this episode, we'll be discussing what's in it for me, you and everyone in the landscape of digital identity. Before we get to the exciting stuff, I'm going to allow each of us to share our background, what we do, the countries we are from, and the exciting things we do in our countries. I'm investigating the digital identity landscape in South Africa, in particular its effectiveness in fighting fraud, looking at the National Digital Identity Program from a human rights perspective, and speaking to a range of individuals on how they see digital identity helping them in their circumstance. This comprehensive view will enable me to propose new digital identity initiatives and offer policy recommendations for all those involved. That includes public officials, lawmakers, representatives from statutory and social rights institutions, and not forgetting technologists, offices of development institutions, and members of the private sector. Subhashish here. I'm investigating the correlation between Aadhaar and exclusion of some of the most marginalized communities in the country. I have a background in documentary filmmaking and I've worked for a decade catalyzing volunteer communities for many international NGOs that support the open internet, like the Wikimedia Foundation, Mozilla, the Internet Society, and the Center for Internet and Society. And this is Pass. I'm looking into what digital identity means for an and underemployed, vulnerable people living in two big cities in Argentina, Buenos Aires and Mar del Plata. Uh, I have worked as a development practitioner, a researcher and activist. And I focus on free and open science and knowledge justice. You've heard us mention our fellowship, the Jodi Digital Identity Fellowship Program, a flagship initiative by Jodi, a UK-based company founded in 2014 with the mission of becoming the world's most trusted identity platform. Jody says it is committed to doing things differently, like never mining or selling people's data. The fellowship was launched last year as part of the company's social impact strategy, with the aim of unlocking the potential of digital identities with a particular focus on local and grassroots issues. So, this is where we come in. So let's dig into this. Maybe a good starting point is to discuss what digital ID means in our target communities. In terms of what digital ID means in our communities, um, when we look at South Africa, South Africa is more of a developing nation if we were to compare it to the West. But if we come here in Africa, we are more developed compared to other African countries. What does that mean for South Africa? Is that we see an influx of people coming here with other means of, of an official ID or people coming here illegally. Um, right now, during the pandemic, um, South Africa has invested 37 million um, rand in order to build a fence because our borders were porous. 
already um, that exercise did improve quite well because a lot of people are still coming. We still have an influx of um, illegal foreigners coming to South Africa. So that is actually causing a, a, a crisis in terms of how do we manage the people that are coming in in the country and especially illegally. So that has increased a lot of activities such as fraud, human trafficking, uh, which has been potentially dangerous if a local citizen loses their ID because in most cases, someone who can get your ID, they can potentially commit a lot of fraud. So, and we've potentially seen that an ID allows you to have access to a lot of things in terms of if you don't have access, you're unable to prove your identity or show your identity to means. With the advent of the fourth industrial revolution, we've seen South Africa trying to introduce digital means in terms of um, more funds invested into e-commerce, uh, more funds in invested in digital learning. But now the problem is that we're still more reliant on physical ID and proving identity using a physical ID document. Um, a lot of people argue that we don't have the necessary infrastructure because of the inequalities that are happening in the country because you see that in urban areas, people are more advanced. They have the infrastructure, they have the the the, the network, but when you go to the village side, we don't have the proper network. But potentially we've seen a lot of um, international companies coming to remote villages um, and um, townships in order to introduce uh, what we call Wi-Fi or other alternatives in order to make sure that even the rural areas can have the digital means in terms of sharing information. But we're still in a very, we're still lacking behind in terms of fixing that because the problem right now is the infrastructure. South Africa has not really developed a way in order to provide the necessary infrastructure, especially for remote villages or other townships. But in terms of People who are living in uh, urban areas, they are more able to get um, this means. So in a nutshell, it means that digital ID it's, it's, or digital identity is more apparent, especially in urbanized areas. But in a more remote uh, villages, there's still issues because people don't actually have the right infrastructure. They, they, they're still unable to get our data, they're still unable to have access to smartphones or any other means in order to capitalize on the opportunities that are brought forward by digital identity. Well, in my case, actually, the objective of my research is precisely to understand what digital ID means for my target communities. So I do not have an answer yet. One thing I can say, however, is that for my interviewees, digital ID seems to refer to all their online identities. And not only the digital ID as understood as the process of verifying you are who you say you are. And here I make a distinction between on online identity and digital ID. And we can discuss and we should discuss more about that soon. So again, um, when discussing digital ID, my interviewees tend to link it to what I call online identities, which are part of their whole identities as people. And these are the sort of identities that are constantly changing, adapting, and are rather complex and unique, and very subjective. However, the issue of verification 
which is what digital identity refers to mostly, has in fact come up during interviews. And it seems relevant, actually, because it often complicates things for people. For example, it is very common for them to lose online accounts after forgetting their passwords and being unable to reset them. And, and yeah, and this annoys them to, to a large degree. So, so yeah, there is a gen- this is a general overview. But, but what about India? In India, the question of identity and digital identity has to be looked at with a social dynamics lens. What that means is that there is a spectrum based on privileges, access to technology, understanding of public and private information, and most importantly, understanding of identity and digital identity. Many of those who lie on the other side of the spectrum with most privileges, access to education, do understand about their digital identity. However, the marginalized communities who I'm interviewing think of their identity as something that the government recognizes them for. And they think of their digital identity as a double-edged sword that could entitle them and could rob them off of social benefits. So this perceived sense of ID and digital ID comes from the imposed repetitive narrative that the identity card is an imperative to be eligible for social benefits. The Republic of South Africa has a population of over 51 million and we share international borders with six different African countries. We are a multi-ethnic nation, a rainbow nation, an identity that me and other South Africans we are proud of. When you receive our independence in 1994, in the post-apartheid era, citizens and permanent residents aged over 16 were required to have a green barcoded identity book, which is used as a proof of identification for many official use, such as applying for driver's license, passport, registering to vote, and opening a bank account. However, over the years, we have seen that fraud and theft has made the paper book system increasingly insecure for individuals in the state. As part of a major national investment in technology modernization, the Department of Home Affairs decided to put in place what we now call a smart ID card system. The smart card is believed to cut down on the fraudulent use of fake or stolen IDs, which is a major concern in the country. Finally, in a separate section, the research will discuss special consideration and recommendations related to the introduction of biometric IDs, whether in government programs or private sector. In 1968, under a military dictatorship, Argentinians started being obliged to get a national ID card from the National Citizens Registry, an agency under the Ministry of Interior called RANAPER by its acronym, acronym in Spanish. In 2014, that agency issued a resolution that established that the only valid identification document was the new digital ID card and that the citizens' biometric data was going to be digitized and collected into a unified database. Renaper has issued more than 40 million new ID cards. And again, in Argentina, by digital ID card, they mean that all the data included in the physical cards or credentials is digitized. Apart from that, citizens can also get a digital version of their IDs in their mobile phones through an app which is not mandatory. But an interesting thing to notice is that all these identification plans and schemes 
were implemented without any social debate or even a parliamentary debate. Not even the democratically elected governments that came after the dictatorship opened up the debate to other sectors or to civil society. So, in an interview, human rights lawyer Dr. Usha Ramanathan told me about the journey of Aadhaar from being a unique digital ID to a tool for identification. Before even Aadhaar was rolled out, there existed and still exist many different identity cards. Some are digitized and centralized by the federal government, and some are issued in the provincial or state level. These include ration cards or driver licenses, and each one has a set of functional usage. Aadhaar was initially projected as a virtual identity, and it's tied to a unique number and is not a physical card. An Aadhaar user can authenticate their claimed identity using their fingerprints or iris scan or a mobile number, all linked to that unique number. Several public benefits like the public distribution system or PDS that is used for distribution of food grants or ration, banking or even private services are linked to Aadhaar even though it's not legally a mandate. As we speak, about 1.2 billion out of India's 1.3 billion population have enrolled for Aadhaar. And a recent report on the National Bureau of Economic Research suggests that 10% of genuine PDS holders were denied of their benefits because of false authentication errors. So Paz, um, just a question that I have for you. Uh, I want to know what are the challenges in terms of uh, digital ID that you have identified in Argentina? Yes, um, there are a few themes that have appeared over an hour during my interviews. I wouldn't call them findings because the research is not completed yet. But for now, these three issues seem very present. One is digital skills or digital literacy. In general, institutions keep assuming that because people use smartphones, they can do whatever they need on the internet. They assume a certain good enough level of digital literacy. For example, to do online paperwork like filling in tax forms. However, such a level isn't really there. And this came to light recently, when the government provided subsidies for self-employed workers or informal workers in view of the pandemic. Requesting such funds, however, could only be done online, which meant lots of people could not apply. Needless to say, assuming people can do things when they really can't, and not because they're dumb, of course, but because of unequal opportunities, further increases the vulnerability of those who are already vulnerable or in some way excluded. It still amazes me how quickly authorities or institutions equate having access to hardware, in this case mobile phones, to having adequate digital skills. The second and very related theme is lack of both critical hardware and internet connectivity. A lot of people just do not own computers or have easy access to one, and they do not have access to reliable, fast and affordable internet connections, not in their homes, not in their workplaces. And the third relates to the tricky issue of privacy. Those I have interviewed seem to deeply care about privacy, although it seems not in the way that the tech sector and decision makers often refer to it, that is in the need to hide people's legal names, to be anonymous. In fact, they do not mind, and in many cases prefer using their real names. What they seem concerned about, however, 
Is there autonomy online? About experience being on the internet without abuse, harassment or manipulation and being able to use it for what they need. So, Subo, what level of digital literacy citizens need in India in order to to be part of the Aadhaar ecosystem? Before we even talk about digital literacy, we should probably look at the state of literacy in India. The literacy rate among the scheduled tribes in India is about 40%. Scheduled tribes is a legal classification in the Indian constitution that is used mostly for the indigenous peoples. They constitute about 8.6% of India's population. Indigenous people, by and large, are marginalized when we talk about digital literacy. Coming back to your question about the role of digital literacy in Aadhaar, it's very direct. You need to have some basic understanding of your digital rights, like privacy, before even sharing your personal information. You need to have at least one phone number with yourself, as Aadhaar is always linked to a phone number. You also need to keep your Aadhaar number safe to avoid any fraud. But in reality, most people are asked by public and private service sector to provide a photocopy of Aadhaar for authentication, which makes such Aadhaar users vulnerable. Aadhaar now has more security layers. You can generate QR codes and use a mobile app. But we are talking about advanced features for smartphone users who understand QR code and XML to a community with 40% literacy rate. To me, providing education to them should be the first priority. So, Shepo, what has changed in the digital ID landscape for the marginalized communities in South Africa? And are these communities more vulnerable now than before? I have also noticed that many rural communities predominantly rely on social grants given the social geographic challenges they face and the lack of employment opportunities. In other cases, from a human rights perspective, some elders are denied the right to social grants due to an incorrect birth date recorded previously on their ID. Reason for this can be down to everything from challenges of literacy to simple errors from the old home affairs departments. While my research indicates that identity challenges such as fraud are less likely in rural areas. However, it has shown that identity challenges have existed in another form. For example, where a wrong identity is given to an individual who then ends up bearing the consequences for the rest of their lives. I have also discovered that some children have been given false identities intentionally by their parents in order for them to receive specific social grants and benefits reserved by the state for more disadvantaged groups. Having a basic ID also makes it impossible to obtain a driver's license and coupled with completion of metric certificate gives the ID holder a better chance of gaining some of the primary employment opportunities. A number of young people I spoke to have missed out on several opportunities because they lost some of these documents. Despite efforts to switch to a smart ID, identity theft is a growing problem in South Africa. Cases are reported every week of criminals selling fake IDs, license, passports, and other form of identification. Furthermore, the number of people who simply ignore the fact that they have lost an ID and never reported to the relevant authorities simply adds to the problem. The lack of agency in reporting ID theft is a problem and it needs to be backed up by easily available, accessible information about the dangers and the impact of having your identity stolen. Education is a key part of the equation here, an area where considerably more time, effort and resources are required if we to begin to combat ID fraud in South Africa. Shepo, 
what happens in remote places where there is no digital infrastructure um, that is required to use a digital ID? Interesting question, Pez. I'm currently exploring how digital ID lessens or mitigate these problems. We don't have to rely on carrying a physical ID or papers to prove to the authorities who we are. In particular, I'm exploring the experience of marginalized communities who face challenges like not having access to the internet to see how we can incorporate digital identity in their lives. There's a lot of areas in South Africa that have this issue, but it's starting to change as companies like Google are currently trying to introduce Wi-Fi in a number of townships. Potentially with the advent of 4IR, we'll see an introduction of digital ID coming soon. We'll dive into more details in the upcoming episode as we continue exploring more avenues of digital identity in the lives of marginalized communities in Argentina, India, and South Africa. Do subscribe to our podcast channel, Numbered Humans, in whichever app you're on. Thank you so much for listening to us. We also regularly publish our writings on yotifellows.com. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag Numbered Humans to ask us anything about our research or even share your comments. Thank you so much for joining us once again, and we'll see you on the next podcast channel of Numbered Humans. Numbered Humans.